everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are very excited to have our first special guest on the podcast. Plus, we have some sustainable gift ideas for the coming holiday season. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know about our Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. Patreon is a site where you can easily support projects like Whale Tales for as little as a dollar a month. You'll get access to perks like an exclusive weekly newsletter and polls where you can help us decide on topics for the podcast. The support of our patrons really means so much to all of us and helps us run the website and this podcast. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Welcome everybody to episode 8 of the Whale Tales podcast and as we mentioned we are so excited to have our first special guest joining us for the entirety of our episode. We have, drumroll please, the amazing, the incomparable Derek Jang here today. Hello, oh I didn't know I was drumroll worthy. Thank you for being here. You are the first, as I mentioned, special guest that we have ever had joining us for the entirety of our episode. Uh, and while all three of us have known you for quite some time, because at one point we did all work together, um, we're not going to talk about our past lives. We have you here for a very important reason today, and that is because you are one of the very important people running the Porpoise Conservation Society. Well, I'm so proud to represent for this organization, which we care deeply about. Uh, as one of the board members and founders of Porpoise Conservation Society, we're a bunch of people who get together, who love to talk about porpoises, and you know, who in many ways are kind of here to carve out some space for these weird little cetaceans, get people as excited about them as they are for dolphins, get porpoises their time in the spotlight. And opportunities like this are very much what we're about. And porpoises deserve that spotlight because, I mean, you're talking, you're preaching to the converted, at least on the podcast. Hopefully our listeners are, are on board too. And if not, that's what you're here for. Well, I don't know, Nicole, because, you know, I, I, I've done some whale tales reading and I'm seeing a lot of stories that, to be frank, involve my precious porpoises getting eaten. That involve people talking about how, oh, I worked on a whale watching boat and we only saw porpoises. It was horrible. You know, there, there's a lot of, you know, interspecies competition going on in the cetacean world. I, I will say the poor whale-watching vessel uh, folks maybe do have a point. A lot of the stories that we have from the field are, we went out, we looked at a big gray ocean. Maybe we saw a little bit of one of those little gray animals, not too much more. They don't always make for riveting storytelling. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's even more important that there are people and organizations that are specifically advocating for these animals that are you know, so often left behind in the broader conversations. It's always whales, dolphins, and porpoises, not <laughs> porpoises and the rest. Should we change it to, should we change it to uh, be alphabetical and just go dolphins, porpoises, and whales? I like that. I, I, I think that that sounds pretty good. I mean, y y you know, second place is get, getting closer, getting higher. <laughs> you gotta have realistic goals. I suppose I'll acknowledge that dolphins and whales are pretty cool as well. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons that many of the people um, in our organization kind of fell in love with porpoises first. Um, for those listeners who may not know, uh, 
the way that I met with the Whale Tales folks is through the Vancouver Aquarium, which uh, was the first organization in Canada to successfully rescue and rehabilitate a stranded porpoise. And the individuals who came through the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, uh, including uh, two individuals who came to live on site at the aquarium, and one actually nursed back to health and successfully re-released into the wild, again, a Canadian first, uh, really brought a lot of the individuals who set up the society, a new appreciation for and a new understanding of these little gray animals that are so common in our waters, but so underappreciated. I can certainly speak from personal experience that prior to that life-changing, truly life-changing moment of meeting Daisy, the first harbor porpoise that was rescued at the Vancouver Aquarium, I had been, I admit, one of the whale watchers who was kind of like, well, there's some porpoises. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they're cool, maybe. And then, just like you said, Derek, I, I completely changed my tune. Daisy changed my life. She was an incredible advocate for her species. And I'm so glad that that was an opportunity that those of you who founded the Porpoise Conservation Society had the opportunity to have because you guys are changing the world. Why don't you tell us about what you're doing? Uh, the Porpoise Conservation Society, led by our president, Dr. Anna Hall, one of the world's leading experts in all things porpoise and someone who uh, met a lot of the founders when she actually came to the aquarium as a guest speaker for a public lecture after being recruited by some of Daisy's biggest fans within the building, is now designed to raise public awareness for and educate people of all ages about porpoises and the conservation threats that are affecting these animals. Uh, we know that porpoises get less attention than sorry, the more popular members of the cetacean group. They have this reputation, not totally unearned, that they're maybe not as acrobatic, maybe not as charismatic when seen from the surface, maybe not as, well, definitely not as impressive in size when you're competing with killer whales and blues and humpbacks. <laughs> uh, but for all of that, we know that porpoises are potentially extremely intelligent that they have social lives that are poorly understood but are potentially very complex, and that there are porpoises in all of the world's oceans. There's a lot of uncharted territory with these animals, and a lot of research just hasn't laid the groundwork for us to have a good understanding of what they do, why they do it, or how we can make sure that they keep doing it for future generations. We're here as an organization to change that. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Very, very worthy goals, obviously. So since you have this platform with the Whale Tales podcast, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the porpoise basics that you would like more people to know and share? Fantastic. Well, first off, they're not just little dolphins. And porpoise and dolphin, definitely not the same things. Uh, one of the, uh, and of course, whenever we're talking about an animal difference, I know that a lot of people glum on to like, oh, well, what's different about their fins? What's different about their faces? And what's really different, of course, is their genetic lineage, their evolutionary history, who their great, 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 great grand ancestors were breeding with so many years ago. Um, happily, however, with porpoises, uh, you, there are actually some traits that are really commonly seen amongst all of the living species that can be used to easily distinguish them for other, 
from other cetaceans. And probably the quickest one is to look at their teeth. Dolphins have broad conical teeth. They're sort of rounded, they're great for killing fish, but porpoise teeth are much smaller and much flatter. The scientific community often refers to them as spade-shaped teeth. Gotta admit, I've never totally wrapped my head around that. I don't really see the resemblance having looked at a lot of porpoise teeth. Uh, to me, they remind me more of like a, a dagger or an arrowhead. Uh, interestingly, they do pretty much the same thing. They're uh, the porpoises here in British Columbia that we spend most time with tend to eat slightly smaller, slightly shallower food sources than many of the dolphins that visit our waters, uh, but otherwise they're using them in much the same way. There may be just some genetic jackpot component that's allowed these animals all to have this characteristic when really conical, spade-shaped teeth work in pretty similar ways. Still, if you ask a little grayish cetacean to open its mouth, you can tell pretty quickly if it is or is not a porpoise. A couple of other qualities about these animals are that they tend to have blunter snouts than dolphins. Um, not a perfect rule. There are some pretty porpoisey looking dolphins out there when it comes to the rostrum end too. Um, but usually they don't have that same uh, pointed distinctive snout. Porpoises also tend to have a much smaller or less pronounced dorsal fin. Again, not a perfect rule. Lots of other dolphins and whales out there that have reduced to no dorsal fins on their backs. Uh, but for porpoises, generally not having the really broad triangular ones um, is another way to distinguish them. Um, aside from that, the extant or living porpoise species that are found around the world's oceans include harbor porpoise, doll's porpoise, spectacled porpoise, burmeister's porpoise, vaquita, narrow-ridged finless porpoise, and Indo-Pacific finless porpoise. Just seven species, so unfortunately they're not only not as populous um, and not as popular as dolphins, but there aren't as many living examples of this uh, lineage in our oceans now. However, they make up for some of that lack of diversity with their extensive range. Porpoises are found in all the world's oceans, um, and pretty much anywhere you go, there's a chance that these creatures are spending some time there, even if they're kind of hard to see. Why is the vaquita the only one who doesn't have porpoise after their name? <laughs> <laughs> More seriously, I will say, uh, obviously porpoises are your favorite cetacean as a group, but do you happen to have and are willing to share what your favorite of the seven species is? Ooh. Well, my personal favorite is definitely the vaquita. Uh, and not just because it's the outlier when it comes to not having to work. Animals have really become sort of the conservation hero species for our organization. I know from years working in conservation work at museums, at parks, at tourism institutions like Vancouver Aquarium, uh, that what gets people engaged and interested in animals or ecological stories that they've never considered before is often those extreme cases, the most dramatic stories that you can come up with. And vaquita are sadly uh, one of the animals that's most in an extreme situation in their natural habitats. Uh, the reason, by the way, that they're called vaquita is that they're only found in a small part of Mexico's waters in the northeast edge of the Gulf of California. Now, if you're like me and geography was not maybe one of your strengths when going through your schooling, um, the Gulf of California is that sort of finger-like projection that comes into Mexico's west coast. And I like to think, uh, picture it as the Vaquita's range is entirely in what would be the nail of that finger. 
<laughs> so right up at the top, highly separated from and highly isolated from a lot of what's going on in the ocean, but still with enough prey items entering that some diverse habitats and diverse ecological roles have been able to develop over time. Uh, Vaquita were only really discovered a few decades ago because they are found in such a small and specific space, and because they're very small and kind of stealthy. Uh, these animals are even smaller than the harbor porpoise, which we commonly see in our studies here in British Columbia, uh, but have a couple of distinctive features, including what scientists call a makeup-like pattern, where they have sort of a smoky eye, dark patterning above their eyes, and there's a dark, almost lipstick-like pattern to them as well. They're, they're very goth, very edgy amongst the porpoises. <laughs> Perhaps due to that kind of spectacled patterning on their bodies, uh, the word vaquita actually refers to a translation for little cow or little calf. Uh, so that's where the name originally comes from. Unfortunately, in that tiny range and with no real opportunity to uh, expand their genetic population when threats come into that area, uh, vaquita are sadly today considered to be the world's most endangered marine mammal. And it's been estimated that there are definitely fewer than 30 vaquita found in the, on the entire planet at this point in time. I know when we talk about extinction events with so many organisms, you know, we talk about what are things going to look like in the next 10 years, in the next 50 years, in the next 100 years. Vaquita are organisms that were already being harmed by the fishing industry when their species was first discovered. And unfortunately, years of inaction and slow progress that prevented actions that could have kept their population at subsistence level have let things erode down to the point now where there are fewer vaquita than there are in just about any classroom in British Columbia. The reason for these animals' decline is not because they're being targeted, but because they're sharing habitat with some other animals that are highly valuable. A fish species known as the totoaba, which is also found in that northeast part of the Gulf of California, is highly valued for its swim bladder, which is said to have a lot of traditional medicinal value, and unfortunately can be sold to uh, certain markets overseas for exorbitant prices, with the swim bladder in particular uh, being able to fetch a significant amount of money on the black market. Although the totoaba is a protected species, Poaching is rampant, and the nets that are used to capture those animals are just the right size that they can easily kill vaquita. Unfortunately, not as much is known about porpoise echolocation and the ways that these animals navigate as is about some of the more popular and some might say easier to study cetaceans that make their presence a little bit more easily known, that have more generations under human care and thus have been more accessible to researchers. But one thing that's suspected about a lot of these small porpoises is that they kind of go on autopilot, that they may not actively echolocate through an area, and that they may be poorly adaptable to the presence of new obstacles being introduced into their spaces. That means that it's really easy for a porpoise that's not paying attention to get caught in a net that's not where it expects it to be. And unfortunately, the years of accidental bycatch kills of Vaquita and the low historical population of these animals just has meant that there's not enough of them to reproduce and continue to build that population. Easily, we could be talking about a few shipments of totoaba uh, coming out of 
Mexico, meaning that the last vaquita has been taken. It is critically important that uh, the authorities in Mexico continue to protect and monitor this environment. Uh, on the flip side, it's easy to understand as well how, you know, particularly for somebody who's looking to find a way to economically support their family, the Totoaba represents such a huge economic opportunity, the temptation has got to be tremendous. Uh, to the Mexican government's credit, there have been huge strides that have been made in the past few years, including declaring the entirety of the vaquita's natural habitat a protected area from fishing. But of course, with any aquatic environment, the ability to actually enforce that um, is still challenging and remains a persistent threat to the remaining animals and their ability to continue. I know that this is something that is obviously very close to your heart, to our heart at Whale Tales, and obviously to many of our listeners. And one of the things that I really struggle with when I hear about the plight of the vaquita and, and most endangered species, really, if it's not an endangered species living in an ecosystem that I frequent is trying to figure out what I can do um, to help. And in this case, when we're talking about a species with possibly less than 30 individuals left, I know it can feel really disheartening and depressing to think about, well, what can I do that would actually make any kind of difference? So do you have any advice for our listeners when it comes to trying to take positive action in this situation? Well, I think one of the big reminders that I have in those situations is that when you have identified the problem, when you've laid the groundwork, you've done the research, you've got to remember that if that problem is entirely human controlled, no matter how critical the situation may seem, there is very likely to be a human focused solution that can be implemented as long as we make sure to bring all stakeholders to the table and ensure that we work as a society to shift the values and to shift the understanding at all levels kind of of those people who have a stake in that habitat. With vaquita, the great thing about these animals is we know exactly what is killing them. There is one problem. There's one reason that fishing is going on in that area. It's Totoaba swim bladders being exported out on the black market. The fact that that has already been made illegal, the fact that government protections have extended to that area at this point in time, is a huge accomplishment and a huge model uh, that demonstrates that you can get government stakeholders on board. It's a shame that it took as much time and it took the population to such a critical point with this species in that case. But I think that it's going to allow in future cases where similar things like this are happening, potentially people to speak up more loudly for politicians to step forward sooner in those processes and for scientists to also understand kind of using this as a case study what the consequences can be when that inaction has taken place. I also think that the vaquita situation uh, in particular with the right level of monitoring, with the right level of buy-in and investment in researchers and with further investment in um, well, effective monitoring for those areas is one of those things where there's a potential clear solution. Stop poaching. That's a thing that is a possible, conceivable, tangible goal. Ensure that people who are coming to the area have educational opportunities. Ensure that the stakeholders who are potentially funding the 
already the amazing legal changes and growth that we've seen, particularly in the past five years, um, are getting the credit they deserve within the international community. And that this sort of stigma of allowing a charismatic marine mammal to go extinct on their watch continues to power the funding and resources that have already gone into this. But another thing that drives me is, you know, I, I'm sad to admit that, you know, it's very possible that we could see Vaquita go extinct within our lifetime. If that happens, I'm not going to let them go quietly. I'm going to make as much noise about and ensure that as many people as possible know that this tragedy has happened, appreciate that that tragedy has happened, and that we're finding ways to proactively look for other signs earlier in the story that will prevent it from happening again. Vaquita have, in some ways, very unideal characteristics about their um, physiology when it comes to studying them. Again, like many of the porpoises that cause whale watchers to roll their eyes anytime they go by them. They're kind of small. They're kind of the exact same color as the water around them. Their little dorsal fins disappear if there's a slight amount of wind on the water's surface. They don't jump. Ironically, these porpoises don't engage in porpoising leaps, that little kind of subtle jumping behavior. You look at the best wild photographs of this species that are ever taken alive, and it's like, oh, there, fin, little bit of back. <laughs> that's a real challenge on the other hand we believe that their estimated original population uh, was you know probably around 600 animals they've developed in and live in a range that's really well known that has kind of uh, the uh, gulf of mexico is surrounded by so much human geographical understanding, that it's easier in some ways to get a sense of the scope and the ecosystem demands of those animals and where this problem is taking place. Not to mention, when conducting counts of the species, we're kind of looking in a finite area. When was the last time a lot of governments invested in a porpoise population count in their regions? <laughs> How much scientific work about the other porpoise species is relying on kind of vague estimates that might have been made 30, 40, 50 years ago and are just kind of assumed to be true because nobody's put in the work to update them. Furthermore, you know, what is, particularly for the species that are kind of challenging to study, inspiring, to be frank, the scientific community now to invest in work for them that's going to be possibly harder because of their physiological characteristics and possibly less recognized because porpoises are just a little bit less attention grabbing than many of the species that have a built-in fan base. Although I, I hate to consider the possibility, but even if we lose the vaquita, the number of people who know that species' name, the number of people who understand that it's going on has grown astronomically thanks to events like International Save the Vaquita Day, thanks to the work of the uh, amazing not-for-profit organizations that are setting up campaigns for these animals all around the world in terms of both physical events and opportunities to donate to the research work that's going on in the field. And I think that a lot of that energy, if we do lose these animals, is going to be transferable into action to ensure that the same thing doesn't happen to the finless porpoises, to the burmeisters, uh, even to the dolls porpoises of British Columbia, which anecdotally are doing some very different things than would be expected based on the most recent really 
thoroughly published population reports and the historical data about where those animals use for ranges. I hope that people will be able to take from the story of these creatures not just the ability to make change for them, but the inspiration to ensure that a tragedy of this scope doesn't happen again, and that we don't take for granted any single cetacean species, even if they're kind of small and great. Well, as you mentioned, I think one of the positive ways to look at this story, one of the silver linings, is that it is encouraging more scientists to put their resources or to ask for resources to be put into the study of corpuses in other parts of the world and other species of porpoise. I know that your organization is particularly involved in the study of porpoises here in British Columbia. Is there any work going on here that you'd like to share with us? Well, absolutely. Um, While Porpoise Conservation Society is an organization that has international reach, we're doing some really exciting stuff outside of our home base in Canada that I'm quite prepared to talk about publicly at this point in time, but uh, let's just say that we are working hard to ensure that our understanding of some vulnerable porpoises in parts of the world other than North America, uh, then Canada and Mexico are also going to be getting their due and attention. Uh, but yes, tempting, no spoilers though. <laughs> we'll have you back, yeah. we'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you will. Uh, but when it comes to what we can do in our own backyards, uh, again, I really have to look back particularly to Daisy and Jack, the two harbor porpoises that were rescued by the Vancouver Aquarium um, as individuals who really inspired just how cool the story is of what's going on beneath the surface of those little gray fins. Porpoise Conservation Society has volunteers who are going out to some local sites, establishing data about these animals. And one of the places that we've put a lot of our uh, energy is into field work to ensure that we have some measurable and consistent software that helps us to establish how many of these animals are coming to our local waters, where these animals are spending their time, what number of offspring, and what kinds of group dynamics we're seeing amongst these creatures. And also, to be frank, learning about behaviors that in some cases are quite unexpected or very poorly documented from harbor porpoises, just by virtue of having the patience to kind of stand in a fixed spot wait with a high resolution <laughs> camera and be prepared to snap with a trained eye who sees that little dorsal fin coming up. If you check out our website, porpoise.org, or follow us on Facebook at Porpoise Conservation Society, we're constantly adding new photos that are submitted by our followers, um, but that are also being gathered directly by our field researchers and volunteers. And there's some crazy stuff going on that gives us more of a sense of what's happening in our waters. The number of harbor porpoise penis pics that I've seen is <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> um, we're, we're talking all kinds of weird reproductive behaviors. We're talking family dynamics that are a little bit unexpected. Um, sadly, unfortunately, we're also observing something that certainly is underdocumented and underreported, uh, which is um, harbor porpoises that are showing signs of damage from fishing gear, uh, signs that they have suffered from a boat collision at some point in their lives. Um, and these individuals are still out there. They're still alive. That's great. You know? um, it, but it, it does remind us that you know, it, it's not just data coming in from animals whose bodies are found who have been tangled in fishing gear or who have been struck by vessels and then have washed up afterwards that are suffering from that problem. And I think that using the scientific sense that, well, just the ones that we found dead give us an idea of the scope of that problem is not 
by any means the best or most comprehensive way to understand the real amount of damage that's being going on to these animals. One of the other cool things about this work is that although harbor porpoise in our waters are very common, and dolls porpoise can make appearances in large groups, but let, let's just say things are kind of erratic. What you read in the guidebooks may not be as true now as it was when a lot of those initial surveys were done. Um, but for both species, there's still kind of a mystery as to what exactly breeding areas look like. What are the habits that are best for these animals to raise their young? Are there particular patterns that are followed by these individuals? And it's really exciting now that we're getting to the point years into this work where we can start to identify some individual porpoise year after year after year uh, that potentially we're going to be able to have the chance to get some more understanding, not just of the species and habits in general, but of the individual lives of some of these animals. And again, for creatures that are so hard to see, I think that that's really phenomenal work. Yeah, absolutely. And we are going to make sure that we share not just your website, uh, but some of the particular stories and projects that you've talked about so far today, Derek, on our show notes for this episode so that all of our listeners can go and learn more. So Derek, I know that you obviously have lots of knowledge about porpoises. And the next question we have for you is going to be a really hard one, but I'm going to challenge you. Because one of the segments of our podcast is the fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact. Oh, yeah. There we go. Um, I make up a different song every episode. <laughs> one day I'll, I'll come, to, come to some kind of terms about what I like. But we do focus on a cool fact about a cetacean. And obviously with you here today, we wanted to focus on a porpoise fact. So can you share your favorite fun flipper fact about any porpoise out there? Oh, my God. Goodness, put me on the spot. You're just going to give me one? But I think that my fun fact is going to be that in the waters of British Columbia, although they look quite physiologically different, harbor porpoises and dolls porpoise actually breed, interbreed fairly frequently. It wasn't that long ago that the scientific consensus would have been that the hybrids of these animals, which are actually quite unusual looking and really do appear to be sort of an intermediate between the harbor and the doll's porpoise. Uh, however, some very cool genetic work that was uh, done a few years ago, um, I believe uh, scientist Carla Crossman was the lead on um, a lot of the analysis, uh, picking apart DNA samples from all the dead porpoises that were washing up, uh, found that a significant number of offspring had both dolls and harbor porpoise DNA back in their ancestry. So apparently it seems like young dolls, porpoises, um, when they get to reproductive maturity, often seem to take an interest in harbor porpoise, maybe before the females of their species might consider them an attractive mate. Um, and that's where you get a little bit of a shakeup into the gene pool. Interestingly, however, after the first generation where the hybrids look quite distinct in their phenotype, um, it does seem like those hybrids can successfully interbreed and their offspring uh, can, I, I, I don't want to say pass, but have a phenotype that's more typical for either the dolls or the harbor porpoise species, depending on uh, the sex of the animal and the size of the individual that's come through. They seem to have no trouble uh, reincorporating into one of those populations. So 
I think they're a great example of individuals who look very different. Uh, for those of you who have never seen a doll's porpoise, uh, they could, from a really broad distance, don't hate me for saying this, Nicole, but they could almost be mistaken for a little tiny baby killer whale. If you don't know much about little tiny baby killer whales, but <laughs> their color pattern is uh, quite distinct, whereas harbor porpoises have that more typical porpoisey gray, dull coloration to them. Um, and although they behave very differently, with harbor porpoises being much more mild and much less gregarious than the dolls, and although their habitat habits seem to be quite different, they're clearly what we would think of as two distinct species. But the reproductive isolating barrier between those animals is far more malleable and permeable than a lot of people have appreciated. So it's kind of a cool case study of how two distinct but different organisms are blurring lines between which is which. Or, you know, there's some great love stories to be written about the dolls and harbor porpoise world. <laughs> Well, Derek, this is the Whale Tales podcast, and of course, we always want to include a tale or two in our episodes, so you have, I know, many, many porpoise tales to share. We have lots on our website that we can share in some social media posts, but is there one in particular you'd like to share on the podcast today? I think that probably my favorite a whale tail case um, in one of these periods um, is seeing a couple of my uh, highly dedicated uh, companions uh, from the Porpoise Conservation Society out in the field cursing and swearing up a storm because of the bad luck that they had encountered a large group of transient killer whales <laughs> in the area who are splashing around, making all kinds of a commotion right at the surface of the water. And everybody is super frustrated that that means that none of these tiny little harbor porpoise fins are going to be showing up anytime soon because they can probably tell that that's not a good place to be. <laughs> uh, it, even though the porpoises are absent here, it really does remind me that with enough dedication when you become an aficionado a specialist a true stan <laughs> um, as we say in the culture world um, of a certain species you know it really changes your perspective on everything else that's going on within those ecosystems and i love that now there's a dedicated crew of folks in vancouver for whom the giant killer whales are the disappointment and the little gray guys are what we're after <laughs> Nicole's heart is breaking. I can hear it. Oh, I know. She wants it to be is, there. She's got I'm her cheerleading pom-poms out saying, eat him, eat him, kill those porpoise. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Transient's going to transient. Just, just small pom-poms. Just, just little ones. Just okay. like under my breath. Just, <laughs> just get him. <them>, <laughs> yes, I often get messages from members of your board saying oh your horrible dolphins showed up today and ruined my science <laughs> <laughs> oh do they do that yes yeah. oh <laughs> it's always my dolphins it's always my fault that the transient killer whales swim around where porpoises are <laughs> <laughs> obviously you have that control of course <laughs> i'm quite magical something else just jumped to mind for me about these sessions because when you're a part of a research group who are staring with binoculars into an ocean at what appears to be absolutely nothing, 
and which in a lot of cases is absolutely nothing. You, know, you get questions from a lot of the locals who are just out for a hike, out for a walk. Um, and another piece that's struck me about the need to have some uh, more porpoise heroism out there, when you tell people that you're looking for porpoises, the number of people who say, oh, like the little turtles, right? <laughs> oh, and who no. think you're looking for <laughs> tortoises, even though you're looking out into the ocean. <laughs> and I, re- I remember... Um, Listeners, we're in Vancouver. This is not tortoise central. <laughs> it's pretty cold for a non-aquatic shelled reptile species right, to be so wandering that's around. Ocean, listeners, go out there and just inform, inform, inform <laughs> that porpoises yes. are not tortoises. That's right. They're not little dolphins. They're even more not tortoises. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> moments like that really help me to appreciate that you know even the small changes even just being out there giving somebody some of the materials that porpoise conservation society has designed we made the first ever brochure that we know of dedicated only to porpoise identification with all the different species around the world we've got another one that just covers those that are found in the northeast pacific ocean so we pass them out to lots of befuddled people (laughs) like wow they don't have a shell at all. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, more seriously, though, the number of people who look at them and say things like that are here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they really are just in our backyards. Granted, it takes all day sometimes and a fair <laughs> bit of patience. But I, you know, myself have been astonished at some of the areas that I've grown up near, places that I've frequented all the time, places that I see as a hike destination. If you do just sit in the water with a pair of binoculars. At the right time of year, odds are much better than not that you're going to see at least a couple of porpoises coming up. They really are a part of our own backyard. They're just really good at hiding. To their credit, with everything that's going on with human influence in these environments, I'd hide too. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. probably a sensible strategy. <laughs> uh, but I hope that you know we'll hit a tipping point where there's an increase in that appreciation, that these animals aren't just things that live far away in whatever the untouched ocean people picture from National Geographic magazines and half-watched documentaries is in their mind's eye. They're local. They're right there. And the things that we're doing make a difference in their lives. Aww. Looks like got warm and fuzzies there. But that's a good transition to our call to action. Yes, it's right. Because we always want to focus on what we can do to make things better in their lives. And in as this podcast is coming out, we're almost into the month of December, so it's holiday time for many of us, uh, and we thought it would be great to share some of our favorite suggestions for how to give sustainable gifts. So you still get to give gifts and receive gifts, because of course, you know, that's important, <laughs> and it makes us feel good both the giving and receiving, right? But to try and do it uh, with an ecological mindedness and to focus on the sustainability of what you're giving. So Sarah, what is your favorite sustainable gift to give? So this is a really good one for um, like uh, groups of friends or um, even uh, we started doing a secret Santa with my adult siblings and my parents and I, um, and not the, not the 
nieces, but just the grown-ups, and we do a secret Santa, and basically, instead of getting everybody a small present, which, nothing against a small present, what we've decided to do is you sort of pool what you would spend, and we set a limit, um, you know, of whatever you want to set, and then everybody... um, gets a secret Santa recipient and just buys one um, present for that person that's something that, you know, is something that they really need or want that actually um, will become a part of their life and something that they use. Or maybe it's like tickets to something awesome. But um, for example, one year my sister gave me uh, my instant pot and then the next year I gave her an instant pot back. (laughs) Um, So yeah. Um, nothing against like a smaller present, but it just simplified everything in terms of you just buy one thing for one person, you know, it's something that they really want or really need. So that's what we do in our family. And, and it takes away that sometimes guilt that you feel about like, I have so many people to buy a present for what do I get that's within my price range so I can get everybody, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 It really is just, it both simplifies and... Um, environmentally friendlifies everything. Yeah. Ooh, and friendlifies. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Lens, what about you? So we are, we're actually starting our family secret Santa this year as now there are his uh, grandchildren. Um, One grandchild. No, this is not an announcement podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So something that we do, and I know that Sarah's family does too, is, um, Uh, when you're giving a big gift or a small gift is to give uh, experiences instead of things. So that could be something like concert tickets or a Disney plus subscription. Mom, if you're listening, Um, (laughs) uh, or anything like that. It's sometimes it can be hard. I know um, my parents are a little bit sad when it's something like that because there's no unwrapping, but there's also um, nothing wrong with making a nice little graphic of something like, I don't know, Paul McCartney and printing it and putting it in a Christmas card or something um, so that people will actually open something and you'll get to see the look on people's faces. It's nicer than sending an Amazon gift card, just like going an extra step of sending something virtual or not tangible, um, but still having something so that people can look at at Christmas morning or Christmas night or whenever you do your presents. So there's lots of different things. There's uh, all sorts of subscriptions that are not Disney plus and we're not sponsored by Disney. Um, Even, (laughs) Um, you know, ice skating lessons or anything like that, or like a um, contribution towards a big thing, like a trip or uh, an experience. The three of us once when we went to Hawaii, um, instead of buying each other birthday presents, because we're all Christmas babies, we uh, all went on a sunset cruise, which was really awesome. Um, We had a fantastic time. It was gorgeous. We had some great cocktails and we were on a sunset cruise in Maui. That's pretty good birthday present. So yeah, lots of different things you can do. Uh, And if, you know, a sunset cruise in Maui isn't necessarily in your either backyard or your price range, (laughs) there is one of my favorite things to do in the last couple of years is to look at what I have around my house that I can turn into through the magic of Pinterest, something that's a really nice gift for people. So so these are just handmade gifts that show that you took some time to put your love into a a thing that you can physically represent to give to the people you care about. Uh, And something that I gave to a number of my family members last year was I, I looked at my pantry 
and I looked at all of the things in my pantry that I had no idea when I was going to use. Like my flour was about to expire. <laughs> uh, and I came up with, again, through Pinterest, the idea of putting together mason jars that were all of the ingredients you needed to make a batch of cookies. Um, and I can't say that it was completely either Pinterest or my idea because I had been given one of these in the past and it, for brownies and it was awesome because <laughs> who doesn't love a freshly baked, baked, a freshly baked batch of cookies or brownies? Uh, and it's also a great way to use something that you already have in your house. I also have a lot of mason jars randomly. So everything, everything was for use. And for anyone who got one of those, don't worry, the flour wasn't like gonna expire that month. It was just a lot of flour that I didn't think I could go through on my own. So everybody was safe. No food poisoning. <laughs> Um, and Derek, what uh, is one of the things that you think would make a great sustainable gift? Well, if you're looking for something that kind of falls as a meaningful gift, while maybe being price range wise, somewhere beneath Sunset Cruise, but above expired flower jar. <laughs> uh, however, if you are looking for a gift that supports porpoises, your new favorite cetaceans, uh, remember that the Porpoise Conservation Society is a not-for-profit organization, and we depend on donations to fulfill our mission, including the research projects that we're running, as well as the outreach events that are helping to drive people toward these porpoise stories. If you go to our website, porpoise.org, there's a page labeled Adopt that you click on in the top right-hand corner. It will give you some info about how you can symbolically adopt a porpoise and help to support work that's protecting species from Burmeisters to Vaquita to Doll's Porpoise to Harbor Porpoises. You can pick your favorite. You can adopt them all. <laughs> and uh, in doing so, know that you're helping to ensure that more people are having these kinds of conversations and that more trained eyes are going to be out on the water looking for porpoises and advocating for their future. So great. So I think this uh, great uh, list of suggestions for your Christmas list brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, as always, we will have the What You Can Do page link in our show notes. This is going to be, you can also find it on our website under Tales of Saving Whales. It's a really great list of small things you can do to help cetaceans, including porpoises, as well as marine life and the planet around you. Derek, I know that I speak on behalf of Lindsay, Sarah, and I, when I say it has been a total pleasure having you with us today, and we're so, so grateful, not just for your time, but also for sharing your passion and your knowledge about all seven porpoise species. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me here. Remember, if you want to make sure that your whale tails are getting their regular doses of porpoise information, our website, once again, is porpoise.org super easy to remember we're also on facebook and following us on social media is a great way to get the latest updates about what we're working on and what's going on in the porpoise world you can find all of our info on our website whale-tales.org including our merch our patreon with our fancy newsletter perk uh, and our podcast subscription link as well as 700, yes, you heard that right, 700 plus whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. You can also head over to our site to share your stories. Remember, it's not a big deal, it's not scary, and you don't have to be an expert. If you've seen this cetacean, we would love to hear about it, and we would love to add your story to our library. So you can click on the share link on our website, contact us on social media at whaletales.org, 
or email us a voice memo and tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter, especially if it's a porpoise. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Thank you again for listening and supporting us. We will be, we will be back on the 18th of December with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia that Nicole has researched for us. Thanks and have a really great day.